Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Morning, everyone. My name's Angus, if I've not met you before, you might want to keep that passage there from James chapter 5 open, that's where we're going to be camping out this morning, James chapter 5 verses 7 through 11. Have you ever needed a that day to make it through today? What I mean by that is this, there are days and then there are days. There's ordinary time, the, the time of just living, the weeks to weeks, but then there are those moments that punctuate the ordinary with the things that we anticipate, the things that we look forward to. The days that we say, if I know that fill in the blank is coming, then I can make it through today. Now maybe it's the end of a semester and the ensuing freedom. Maybe it's the promotion that you've been waiting for. Maybe it's the new season dropping of your favorite TV show. Maybe it's the wedding day where the planning and organizing will finally be over and married life will begin. Maybe it's your kids sleeping through the night. And maybe it's your kids moving out of your home. Or retirement. Or the overseas holiday you've been planning for 18 months. Or seeing someone you haven't been able to hug for a very long time. Those hopes aren't bad things, those that days, they're not bad things, but have you noticed that they never fully satisfy? The holiday finishes, you go back to work. The wedding passes, but married life brings its own challenges. The kids sleep through the night and then they just start getting up earlier in the morning. The frequent outcome of our short-term hopes is that even when they deliver good things, those feelings of satisfaction and fullness don't last. And in some cases, that day falls flat or never even arrives. But what if our instinct isn't wrong? What if there is a day that will change everything? Today we're starting a series, as Hannah mentioned, that goes through the four Sundays of Advent leading up to Christmas, and we've called the series How to Hope. It just so happens this year that the fourth Sunday of Advent falls on Christmas Eve, And because we're doing a service in the evening on Christmas Eve, we're going to 
make that a Christmas service, and so we're going to bump week four of the series to the 31st of December after Christmas, but still in the month of December, so that we can have a service around Christmas Eve framed up around the hope of the Incarnation. The four weeks of the series, I'll give them to you just now, the first week today, we've titled Wait Expectantly. How to hope? Number one, wait expectantly. Week two, learn the story. Week three, engage relationally. And week four, rest intentionally. Each of these weeks is designed to be something of a rhythm or a habit, a practice that helps us to nurture or to cultivate hope. We don't just want to talk about hope in the abstract. We want to talk about what does it look like to be a person who grows in hope. And it turns out that hope is a precious commodity. In fact, it's an increasing rarity. Sydney-based psychologist Lisa Aitken, who you might know if you've been around CCAW for a little while, she has spoken at one of our wine and cheese events on the topic of loneliness. Uh, She has recently completed a PhD on hope, and in her PhD research, she conducted a study where she asked Australians, what is your best realistic hope for humanity? And participants had uh, four options that they could choose from. Number one, I have no hope. Number two, the best hope I have is that things don't get worse. Number three, I have hope for a few generations, but after that, I'm not sure. And number four, humans will flourish indefinitely. Now, just worth thinking as you hear those options where you would sit on that, and you can take a moment just to reflect on that. The results of Lisa's research, they showed a really significant generational difference. Uh, People who were over 45, as they answered the question, predominantly answered it with the fourth answer. I have hoped that humans will flourish indefinitely. But when it came to under 25s, the most common answer was, the best hope I have is that things don't get worse. Notice that that's a negative story. It's a narrative of decline, and we're just trying to stop the rot. And there's more data besides leases. A huge piece of research from 2021 published in the medical journal The Lancet, looking at 10,000 respondents of young people across 10 countries. 75% of the young people surveyed said the future is frightening. And 69% said that when they think about the future, they feel sad, angry, and hopeless. We are, to put it simply, at one of the least hopeful points in living memory. And that means that becoming a hopeful person is countercultural. In our world of wars and rumours of wars, of climate change and eco-anxiety, of stress around housing, unaffordability, of rising costs of living, it's far easier to be despairing or at least apathetic. 
To be a person of hope means, as Lisa tells her kids, being salmon and swimming upstream. But according to the Bible, our instinct to hope isn't wrong. There is a day that will change everything. And as the old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, puts it, anticipating that day can give us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That's what hope can do. By anchoring your hope in God's future, it can give you strength for today. And so we're going to spend these four weeks looking at how to cultivate hope. And the practice we're looking at this week, this first week, is to learn to wait expectantly. And James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote that letter that we read a few verses from just earlier, he has a synonym for wait expectantly. Chapter 5, verse 7, be patient. That's what it means in a nutshell to wait expectantly. Be patient. And so we're going to explore what it looks like to be patient. We're going to unpack it because James is going to show us something of the anatomy of patience. That's where we'll start. And then he's going to give us two analogies of patience. Well, hang on, I changed my outline. He's going to show us the work of patience, so the anatomy of patience, part one, the work of patience, part two, and then finally, the outcome of patience, part three. So firstly, the anatomy of patience. One of the interesting things about James as a letter is that it's chock-a-block full of what grammarians call imperatives and what ordinary people like you and me call commands. So verse 7, James says, Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. That's a command. Be patient. He's not just recommending. He's not putting out tweetable content. No, he's grabbing us by the neck and he's saying, I know some of us want blessing without the difficulty, but it won't come without Patience. The situation that James was writing to, the people that he was writing to, were mostly poor. They didn't own land. We know this from chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. They were laborers and farmhands, and they were being exploited by the wealthy landowners who were forcing them to bring in the harvest and then withholding their wages. And the kind of culture that they lived in was one where if you had the land and you had the money, you had the power, and so you could, you could withhold, you could fraud people of their wages, and there wasn't nothing that those people who had been exploited could do about it. And James writes to them as a pastor, and he says to them, Be patient. One of the most annoying things that can happen to an oyster is to get a tiny little grain of sand 
lodged in its shell. And most of the time, the oyster can simply expel that grain of sand. It can locate it, find it, and find some kind of way to get rid of it. But on occasion, the oyster simply can't get the sand to dislodge. It works and it works, it tries and it tries, but for some reason, nothing it does is able to shake this irritation. And so it finds itself in a situation, and maybe you're familiar with this, it's a situation that it just can't change. Well, the oyster gets irritated. It gets frustrated. It gets exacerbated. And then finally it decides, if I can't change it, I might as well embrace it. And so what this oyster does is it begins to coat the tiny grain of sand with a liquid substance that you and I pay a huge amount of money for called a pearl. So you know at the end of the day that a pearl is nothing more than the, the fruit of a frustrated oyster. If there was no irritation, if there was no frustration, if there was no exacerbation, if there was no patience, there would be no pearl. And what God wants to do is to take your life and he wants to make it into a pearl. But here's the thing, most of us want that destination we just don't want the process. We want to get to that place that God wants to take us without having to go through the difficulty of the adversity. And James says you don't get to the finish line of maturity without taking a pit stop through patience. In fact, you see it right at the beginning of his letter, chapter 1, verse 2. He says, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Patience assumes difficulty. It's baked into the definition. You only learn patience by going through life's tough times. You can't take it as a subject in a master's degree. You don't learn it by watching YouTube tutorials. Patience is learnt because you realise, I am in the midst of something I do not like. And the money in my bank account can't fix it. My relational network can't get me out of it. My education can't help me outsmart it. Have you ever been there? 
Ever been in a situation you can't fix and you don't like? James says, be patient. But then here's the good news because he goes on. He says, be patient until. Be patient, dot, 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 until. Which means your circumstances have an until on them. They will not last forever. And so you will not need patience forever. Why? Because the coming of the Lord. You need patience now because we're in the waiting. The Lord has not come back yet. And so all of the problems that come knocking on your door continue to trouble you, continue to frustrate you, continue to require patience. But there is a day when those grains of irritating sand will no longer get lodged in your shell. It's the day when the Lord comes. James knows that this coming of the Lord is good news for these poor Christians. They're being taken advantage of. They can't change their circumstances. And James is wise enough to know that those circumstances may not change within their lifetime. And so he doesn't say to them, be patient and your situation will gradually improve. He doesn't say to them, be nice and your overlords will start treating you better. He says, be patient because the Lord is coming. And that right there is a hope that can never be taken away. He's not filling them with false hopes. He's not filling them with a fragile hope that can be crushed. No, he's saying, endure what you're going through now because there is a day, it's for certain, when weeping will end. As the psalmist says, weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And if we needed James to repeat himself, because that sounds hard to believe, he says in verse 8, the coming of the Lord is near. And verse 9, the judge is standing at the doors. Now we read that and we think, how near can it be? It's been almost 2,000 years since James wrote this letter. But, But James is not using that word near in the sense primarily of a short fixed amount of time. When the biblical writers of the New Testament speak of the Lord's coming being near, they mean that Jesus' return is certain. It's, It's near because of where we stand in the story of salvation history. We'll think more about this next week. We live in the time between Jesus' ascension and his return, and in the plan of God, there isn't anything else to be revealed except for the coming of the Lord. Or to put it another way, God has nothing big on his calendar except Jesus returns in glory. That's the next 
step, the next stage. He hasn't told us when. Jesus himself says no one knows the day or the hour, but it is certain. And so be patient. Which then just raises for us another question. What does patience look like? And so point two, the work of patience. See, James wants us to understand what patience is, and so he provides an image from farming. He's writing to a bunch of field workers, a bunch of farmhands, and he goes to their neighborhood and he speaks in language they understand, and he says, verse 7, halfway through, the farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. He says, if you want to understand what patience is, consider the farmer. Because the farmer never turns up to his farm in passive resignation. He doesn't just show up and look to the sky and say, I'm waiting on you, God. No, the farmer gets busy. He's turning the soil over. He's pulling the weeds. He's watching the seasons so he knows the right time to sow seed. He's covering the young shoots with nets to protect them from the birds and shade so they don't get burnt up in the hot sun. From sun up to sundown, he's laboring, but he knows that there's something he can't do. He can't bring the rain. Only God can do that. And so here's the point. Patience is not passive resignation. Patience is active waiting. It's waiting expectantly. But it remembers that there are things that only God can bring. If you want an example of what this waiting expectantly looks like, active waiting, you can think of the Apostle Paul. He's a guy, if you know his story, who meets Jesus, gets converted and gets sent out on mission. He goes around the Mediterranean world of his day to all of the major cities proclaiming the gospel and seeing churches planted. But then some people, they catch on to what Paul is doing. They don't like what he's doing and what they're seeing, and so they bring charges against him before the magistrates, and Paul is thrown in prison. And when Paul writes to the Philippians, he's sitting in a prison cell. He says, I am in chains for Christ. But you know what? Even though he doesn't like his situation, even though he doesn't want to be in his situation, he gets about using it for good. And so he says to the Philippian Christians he's writing to, he says, I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually served to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, Paul's in prison and he thinks to himself, I can't change my situation, but I can use this circumstance to talk to anyone I come into contact with. And before long, the whole prison knows about Christ. That's 
active waiting. And maybe you know something of this experience of active waiting too. The seasons in your life where you have been walking through the valley. Though they're incredibly difficult, have been some of the seasons where you have most closely known the presence of Christ. where you have prayed most insistently and expectantly, where you have found yourself realizing that the temporal things that we so often chase cannot satisfy the cravings of your heart, and so you rely on God because only He can. But maybe if you've had to work on patience for any length of time, you also know, like James, that difficulty can bring out the worst in us. Which is why James says in verse 9, Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Do you get that? Do not grumble. Why? Because the temptation when I'm irritated and frustrated is to let that out wherever I can, including towards those who are not the cause of my problems. I know this experience in my own life when I'm carrying stress because I've got a mountain of work or something that I was hoping to resolve still has threads hanging all off it. I get home at the end of the day and my kids want to play with me and my patience tank feels low. And they're not the cause of my problems. They haven't done anything to be the source of them. But I find myself getting irritated far more quickly than I would like or grumbling about my day. Do you know what that's like? And James says, don't use your circumstance as an excuse for behaving badly. Your hope is in the judge who will right every wrong and bring an abundance of blessing. He is a good judge. That's what you're waiting for. And if you trust him, you will not be put to shame. But if he's the judge, then you don't have a free pass to participate in unrighteousness. No, the knowledge that you have a good judge who is standing at the door ready to judge and to restore and to make all things right leads you to patient trust, to taking your frustrations, your difficulties, your annoyances to him in prayer. God, help me. And so patience is not passive resignation. It's active, waiting expectantly. It's making the most of my circumstances by continuing to trust in the Lord and to serve him where I am and with whatever resources he has given me. Strengthen your hearts, James says. The third century theologian Tertullian said that hope is patience with the lamp lit. Do you like that? Hope is patience with the lamp lit. It can see enough 
that the God of promise will not abandon what he has said he will do, even though I do not see it now. And so because there's just that flickering, glimmering light, it's enough that I can keep being patient. Well, finally, and really just by way of conclusion here, James wants to show us something of the outcome of patience as well. See, James gives two examples of patience at the end of these verses. One is of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, even when it brought about untold suffering on their lives. You can think of the prophet Jeremiah, who was even called the weeping prophet. He was so ridiculed and persecuted by his own people. Or you can think of Isaiah, who, according to tradition, was sawn in half. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, it speaks of the prophets, the faithful, and some of them were sawn in half, and probably a reference to Isaiah. But then he also tells the story of Job, that great Old Testament example of trusting God in your suffering. Job did not have an easy life. Oh, no. Everything he had was taken away, and Job wasn't silent about that. He cried out to God and complained bitterly to him about his situation. But listen to how James sums up his story. Verse 11, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now that word purpose could also be translated outcome, when it's referring to the end of something more to the, than to the process of it. And in the book of Job, the outcome was that Job came face to face with God and then God restored Job's fortunes, a kind of analogy to the experience that we wait for when we wait for the Lord to return. And so here James gives us a clue as to what can sustain your patience in the waiting. It won't happen simply by resolving to be patient. You need more than just grit and determination. It won't happen by just being a tough enough person. No, what will sustain your patience is clinging to the compassion and mercy of God. If you want to be a person of hope, Swimming upstream in a culture where hope feels like a rare commodity, you will need confidence that God is not holding out on you when you experience difficulty. He is merciful and compassionate. He's shown that in the incarnation of Jesus that we remember when we look at Advent to his first coming in the cradle which reminds us and directs our eyes to his future coming in glory. God is compassionate and merciful. He wants to make you a pearl, but that requires patience. And so be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, if we are going to be patient, we need your help.
we need a deep commitment and conviction and inner confidence that you are good to us, that in our moments of difficulty, you have not fallen short of your promise and that your arm is not too short to save. And so help us to be the kind of people who wait expectantly, who are actively pursuing patience in difficulty. Whether that difficulty is a circumstance that is overwhelming, or whether it's the smaller irritations of life that try and tempt us to disbelieve that you are good, Lord, grow in us the kind of patience that James encourages so that we might be people who are full of hope. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.